All right, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. It's a pretty day outside. I'm glad you are here. Just a few housekeeping bits. First off, I want to make sure we're very clear. Next week, we do not have Bible study. Bub will send that out in an email just so it's in writing. The bookmark has that on the schedule. So if you do not have a bookmark schedule, they are at the tables at the doors. If you are not on our email list and get Bub's reminders each Monday about the chapters we're going to be studying, then sign up for those emails here or send Bub an email. You can visit stmichael.org slash rbs, director's Bible study, to send her a note and join our email list so that you don't show up sadly in spring break when we're not having a class. Um, so no class next week on March 16th. We're going to be here in two weeks back again to finish up the rest of this school year without any other breaks. Um, just a couple other notes. I was reminded this morning that our 75th anniversary coffee table books are in stock at the bookshop. And if you have not gotten one, I'm gonna tell you it's beautiful and it is useful. I was just explaining to some of the ladies here that the center of the book, ooh. Are you? Can you hit a button so it stops? Oh, look at that. Oh, so what was going on? Should we like go under the tables or something? Um, okay. Do you know there are more silver alerts in Florida than amber alerts? Do you all know what those are? Uh-huh, yeah. Not, tex not Texas. So back to the coffee table books. In the center of our anniversary book, we invited clergy that have served at St. Michael over the decades to submit prayers for special occasions. And so in the center of that book are prayers for all the special holidays like Easter or Christmas or Thanksgiving, plus prayers for just fun things, birthdays, graduations, and sad things like the loss of a loved one or even things like the loss of a pet. And so the idea is that this book is beautiful and it tells the story of the parish over the last 75 years, but it's actually helpful. You can pull this book out and say a prayer when big things happen in your life, whether those are good things or bad things. And I hope that you will pick up a copy. They're really beautiful. Lastly, we're going to have a prayer today for everyone that needs one. Um, but I do want to note that I am leaving tomorrow with a group of pilgrims, families from St. Michael, to go on a Holy Land pilgrimage. And I encourage you to follow along with us. If you go to stmichael.org slash holyland2020, Nope. It is 2022. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, it's slash holyland22. Um, and that's going to be in the newsletters that come out over the next couple weeks. Um, we're going to be blogging every day and taking pictures of all the different sites that we're going to see around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Nazareth and beyond. And so I hope that you will join us digitally for that as well. Let's start with a prayer and we'll get rolling. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this life, and we ask that you be with us today. Empty us of all that stresses us, causes us fear and worry and anxiety, so that we can make space for your spirit to fill us up. Fill us with that peace that passes all understanding. Help us to receive your word today in Bible study, and to be agents of your peace and love in the world today and every day. Be with our friends who need your healing touch those who are healing from brokenness, from pain, from heartbreak, those who are even near death. 
May they know your presence and feel you lift them up in your arms. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 23 through 26. We are finishing up what I noted a couple weeks ago as the holiness code. Essentially, the second half of Leviticus, with the exception of the last chapter, is what we call the holiness code. It is teaching people how to be holy, how to live right, how to kind of just do life properly. And all of this is because the Israelites are transitioning from being just a group of people, an ethnic group of people, the Israelites, to actually being a religious group of people, the Jewish people. So before Mount Sinai, while they were in Egypt and before, they were not Jewish. Now from Mount Sinai, they're receiving these laws and these regulations and these boundaries and these expectations, and they are becoming the Jewish people. Now, it will be important for us to keep in mind today that what we are reading was not written at Mount Sinai. It was written centuries later, during and after the Jewish exile in Babylon. That's going to be very key when we get to a portion of Leviticus later on in today's lesson. So we're going to have four parts in today's lesson. We're going to talk about celebrations. We're going to talk about punishment, the Jubilee year, and penalties and rewards. So Leviticus kind of goes back and forth from fun things to not fun things. Um, and on that note, we received a question this past week about why we skipped chapter 20. Um, it was skipped in here. It was skipped in our commentary. I am going to bookmark that question for when we get to section four today of penalties and rewards, essentially the answer is we need to know that Leviticus says certain things about punishment. We also need not to focus too much on the specifics. And chapter 20 is just one of those chapters where it's kind of rough and brutal. And we can note the brutality in other ways and also note that that's not a rule that binds us anymore. And so we'll get to that in chapter 26 especially. So let's start with celebrations. We're going to look at chapter 23. Turn to chapter 23 and we're just going to start with the first couple verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed festivals of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed festivals. So we'll pause there and let's talk about this entire section at first macro stuff, and then we'll get into the specifics. This section identifies all of the festivals, all of the feast days, the holiest days of the Jewish year. So we go through as festival days, and I want to say festivals, we certainly use this term. We talk about festivals and feast days in our own liturgical calendar. Festivals for the Jews at this point in time were really meant to be pilgrimages. They were not meant to be just kind of walk down the street to your local gathering spot and remember something nice. Now, obviously, a lot of people could only do that. But essentially, a festival at its best was meant to be you leave your home and you go to the real worship spot. Now, while they're in the wilderness, that is the tent of meeting. That is the tent. It's the tabernacle. Everyone comes to that one worship site whenever there's a festival day. Fast forward a few centuries, and when the kingdom period occurs, and we've got a temple, festivals are when people come from wherever they are, all the good Jews come from wherever they are, to the temple for that particular holy day. Because remember, when the temple exists, whether the first or second temple, 
God is present there. Yes, there are little synagogues around that people gather, where people gather during the weeks. But when there is a big festival, everybody who can goes to the temple in Jerusalem. And so what is being set forth here in Leviticus are really major travel moments, not just a nice day when you spend a little extra time at church. This is meant to be a multiple day kind of experience where you really focus on God. So the festivals that we will be discussing today amount to what we know as the holiest days in the Jewish calendar. Passover really begins the year, sort of, in the liturgical sense. Shavat, which is Pentecost. Then we've got Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And so we're going to go through each of those five. So I'll say just a word about each of them, and then we'll go deeper into each. Passover, we, we know this one, we've done this one. Shavat is Pentecost. Now, for some Christians, there's a surprise that like, oh, Jews have Pentecost. Yes, we Christians did not create that. Pentecost already existed. It, it literally means 50 days, penta, 50 days. And it is 50 days after Passover. And so we celebrate Easter, which is essentially Passover, and then the great 50 days of Easter, and at the end of the great 50 days of Easter, we celebrate Pentecost. So we adopted that same rhythm as the Jewish calendar between Passover and Pentecost. Then there are three, what you may know as high holy days. So if you know any Jews in your life, you've likely heard the term high holy days. It is a series of three holidays that come relatively close together. That's Rosh Hashanah, that's essentially New Year's-ish, eh, we'll talk about it. Then there's Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Rosh Hashanah sets up a period of 10 days that then goes to Yom Kippur. It's kind of like a mini Lent. <clears throat> Rosh Hashanah calls everyone's attention together. They focus on really the ways in which they have separated themselves from God. And then Yom Kippur is the day that everybody goes and atones to God for bad things that have happened. And then finally you get Sukkot or Sukkot. It depends on if you want the British or the American pronunciation. Um, essentially it's the Festival of the Tabernacles and that's when everyone comes together in a Thanksgiving moment. And so we'll talk about all of those. Let's jump in to one by one. So we're still in chapter 23. Let's look at verse three. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of complete rest a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord throughout your settlements. These are the appointed festivals of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall separate, celebrate at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. And on the 15th day of the same month is the festival of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall not work at your occupations, and for seven days you shall present the Lord's offerings by fire, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. So Passover is being described here. We know the people at the time would be very much aware of Passover. It was the final tenth plague where the angel of death passed over all of the Israelites in Egypt who had followed God's commandments, which was painting the blood over their doorstep and girding their loins and all of that good stuff. Well, this is meant to mark that moment and remind everyone every year of God's deliverance out of Egypt. And so Passover becomes an important day 
to mark, and it's marked essentially by having a meal. The meal was had in Egypt, and we know Moses had this. It is unleavened bread, and like I said, you gird your loins, and it's all about being ready to go. When we did this in Exodus months ago, remember that the idea here was God is going to do something, and when God does it, you better be ready to run. And so essentially, angel of death comes over, everyone's ready to run right out the door. You have no time to let the bread rise, so you have to eat unleavened bread. That is where we also get the idea of unleavened bread for our own Eucharist, because of course, Jesus' Last Supper was the Passover meal. And so remember when, and I hope all these things start making connections in your mind, Jesus comes with all his disciples to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. That's when they celebrate what we call the Last Supper and when he institutes what we now celebrate as Holy Communion and the Eucharist. Fast forward, Jesus has risen and he's appeared to the disciples and they're locked up in the room. And then when the disciples receive the tongues of fire at Pentecost and they run out into the streets, remember that they start speaking all different kinds of languages and everyone there can understand them? Well, have you ever wondered why there are a bunch of people there who spoke different languages? Well, it was the Feast of Pentecost, and it's a festival day where Jews made pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem. So they would have come from all over the place, speaking all different kinds of languages. And the miracle at that moment was that the Holy Spirit gave the disciples the capacity to speak to all of these Jews from all over the place in their own language about the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy through Christ. Does that make a connection? Yes, good stuff. Okay, so we know Passover. Let's fast forward a little bit. Verse 15 to Pentecost. Chapter 23, verse 15. And from the day after the Sabbath, from the day on which you bring the sheaf of the elevation offering, you shall count off seven weeks. They shall be complete. You shall count until the day after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days. Then you shall present an offering of new grain to the Lord. This describes Shavuot which we, they called Pentecost as well, we certainly call Pentecost. It was meant to be seven sevens of time. So what happens here is we have seven, seven-day Sabbath cycles, and then on day 50, we celebrate the Pentecost. So we've got the Passover celebration, and then you've got seven sevens, and then on day 50, you've got Pentecost. That celebration was really meant to be a gift offering to God. So there is a first fruits idea around Pentecost. Passover is the deliverance moment, and of course there's gratitude and thanksgiving there, but Pentecost is very specifically meant to be a first fruits moment. Now, Pentecost was almost certainly, as a few other holidays, originally an agricultural celebration. If you think about the time of the year, and Jewish calendar is lunar, which is why for us, Christmas never moves, because the Jews don't celebrate Christmas, right? But Passover and Pentecost were Jewish holidays that we adopted, and so the reason they move all the time, and Easter moves and Pentecost moves, is it's based on the lunar calendar, the Jewish lunar calendar. And so the lunar calendar is what indicates, essentially, the crop cycles, and so Pentecost would have coincided with a festival of... Um, I'm sorry, harvest, thank you. A harvest festival where they would have been able to offer God first fruits thanksgiving for providing for them another year. Does that make sense? Okay, before we jump into the High Holy Days, any questions about Passover or Pentecost? 
right on. All right, now let's get into the High Holy Days. Verse 27. I did that wrong. I'm sorry. Verse 24. We're going to start with 24. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of complete rest, a holy convocation commemorated with trumpet blasts. You shall not work at your occupations, and you shall present the Lord's offering by fire. We'll pause there. Rosh Hashanah. This is the feast, the festival of the trumpets. It is essentially New Year's-ish. They don't necessarily call it New Year's. Um, but it's believed to be the point at which the world was created. Rosh Hashanah is about the first day ever. It is the creation of the world, and it is rested in this idea that God created the world, and then we have essentially kind of messed up, and then we can atone for all the ways we messed up. That's the cycle of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah marks this big creation of the world. Now, I think we talked about this the other day. The temple is built on top of a stone that is believed to be the creation stone. That creation stone is now under the Dome of the Rock. So if you know about Jerusalem, you know up on the Temple Mount, there is the, um, the Dome of the Rock shrine, which is built on top of this stone where the temple would have been. This stone is considered the creation stone. It's also the stone on which Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac, and it's the stone on which Muhammad was standing when he went on his night journey in the Quran. So this is a stone that is very important throughout all the Abrahamic traditions. Rosh Hashanah, in a sense, celebrates that idea that at the foundation of the temple where God actually touches the earth is the stone on which creation began. That period of time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is meant to be self-reflection and introspection around how we have broken trust with God. Ten days later, we get Yom Kippur. Let's read the section from Leviticus about Yom Kippur and then let's talk about how it connects with Rosh Hashanah. Verse 27. Now the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall deny yourselves and present the Lord's offering by fire, and you shall do no work during that entire day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. For anyone who does not practice self-denial during that entire day shall be cut off from the people. And anyone who does any work during that entire day, such a one I will destroy from the midst of the people. You shall do no work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your settlements. It shall be to you a Sabbath of complete rest, and you shall deny yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Yom Kippur is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Now, we know that every seventh day, all year long, is meant to be a day of rest, a day where you are not working and that you take a Sabbath. Eh, like anything else, it's sort of like, you know, Sundays are a day, is a Sabbath day. Y'all should come to church every Sunday because it is the Sabbath. But sometimes, occasionally, we get more people on Easter than on a regular Sunday, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like that with Yom Kippur. Like every Sunday is supposed to be a day of Sabbath where you come and you give thanks to God, but then once a year, there's a big one. And so Yom Kippur is that day uh, where every Jew comes. I don't care what kind of Jew you are, if you have never been to the, to the synagogue or the temple the entire year, if you care at all, you are going on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is that day where 
we as human beings atone for the wrongs we have committed against God. And this is very important. It is not about us together. This is not atoning for how we have mistreated one another. This is specifically atonement for how we have broken trust and relationship to God. So do not mistake this. This is not some like writing notes to your best friend that you spoke badly of or something like that. This is all about 10 days of considering how you have broken God's trust. And then once you are really ready, because it might take 10 days for some of y'all to remember everything that you did wrong to God, that you come together at Yom Kippur and you actually atone for this. And that makes that day the, eh, I mean, arguably this is the holiest day in the Jewish year. And this is a day when you get a restart, but it's a restart with God. So I just want to make that super clear. This is not about you reconciling with each other. That is important and you should be doing that throughout the year. This is that one real moment of reconciliation with God directly. Now following Yom Kippur, we get Sukkot. Look at verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and lasting seven days, thou sh there shall be a festival of booths to the Lord. The first day shall be a holy convocation, and you shall not work at your occupations. Seven days you shall present the Lord's offerings by fire. On the eighth day you shall observe a holy convocation and present the Lord's offerings by fire. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall not work at your occupations. This describes Sukkot. Sukkot is festival of booths, feast of tabernacles, it's called many different things. This also almost certainly began as an agricultural celebration. This is the fall harvest. So if you think about Pentecost is the spring harvest, Sukkot is the fall harvest. This celebration is also centered on Thanksgiving and giving first fruits to God. It is connected with the High Holy Days though, so that's a little bit different than Pentecost. The High Holy Days start with a moment of a new year, remembering creation, proceeds to a day of atonement where the wrongs that we have done against God are righted, and then a week later, a nice big Sabbath celebration where out of our gratitude for a new beginning and a fresh start and fully atoned, we then give first fruits back to God. That happens essentially twice a year. There are these first fruits moments in both Pentecost and Sukkot, where the Jews are meant to offer very intentionally to God. Now, remember, offerings are happening all throughout the year. There are seven-day cycles constantly with good faith offerings, but this is really the moment where, regardless of what you have done and how religious you are, you probably really need to get there and do something good. I want to pause. Any questions about holidays in general? or any of the specific holidays, because I do want to make a direct link to the exile and post-exile identity of Judaism around these holidays. So let's start with, based on what we have done here with these holidays, any questions? Even like, how do Jews do stuff today is fine too. Really? All right, fine, good. Yes. Did I see a hand? Yeah, so most of the holiday are um, 
Um, so question is, do we have a specific day for atonement? Um, I would say that the greatest kind of atonement day, <laughs> it's interesting you ask that. What a good Episcopal question to ask. Um, because Episcopalians are like, kinda atoning, sorta, maybe. Um, had you been raised Roman Catholic, you totally know that it's Good Friday. I mean, that is the day when you prepare yourself for Easter. And you prepare yourself, if you think about, um, there really isn't a one-to-one -one relationship here. If you think that, in order to genuinely celebrate something great, you have to cleanse yourself of the stuff that you've done that is bad. That's kind of what's happening here in some of these Jewish holidays. There's a cleansing before the celebration. Similarly, we do a cleansing Thursday, Friday, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday before Easter. And so symbolically, we see that on Monday, Thursday, the washing of the feet, the stripping of the altar. Good Friday is very bare. And Good Friday is traditionally a day for reconciliation and confession, that cleansing idea of atoning for what we have done in order to be as clean and pure as possible to then celebrate Easter. So that's really meant to be the arc. The, we call this the Paschal Triduum in kind of Roman, Orthodox, Anglican um, terminologies. Essentially, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. A super highly liturgical person knows that Easter is actually celebrated the night before the morning of the day. So the Easter vigil, that really is Easter. Now, for most of us and for all of our lifetimes, Easter Sunday's really been the day we celebrate Easter, which is fine. I love all the flowers and the dresses and the shoes and whatever. Um, but <laughs> essentially, you've got three evenings that mark this arc. Beginning Monday, Thursday, you've got an evening service because, and interestingly, it's, the, it's really the only time that we make it a point as Christians to celebrate in evening. Jews always do evening, right? When's Shabbat, right? It's always in the evening because it's lunar. We essentially have pivoted all of that to the morning. Now, if any of you do evening services regularly here, like on Sunday nights, then you know evenings are fine. But it's really only that three-day period, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday with the Easter Vigil, that we maintain this evening worship that is super old-school Jewish identity. Strip the altar on Thursday, we are super laid bare on Good Friday, and then on Saturday, you get the great light that comes back in the world with the resurrection. Which is why, if y'all haven't been to Easter Vigil service, that's why I serve Prosecco at communion at the Easter Vigil. Did you know this? Oh my gosh, yes. So this is something I've been doing for a long time, and I started it here when I came. One night only, um, we, our communion wine is champagne. Um, it's Prosecco, honestly, because we don't do the whole, like, from France. But we do Prosecco for communion wine, and I literally pop the bottle um, before the table is set. And 
it's been sad the last couple of years because we haven't had people in the church. But for the first few years I was here, we would, people would totally like catch the cork out in the congregation. It was fantastic. I didn't know exactly how St. Michael would respond to this. So my first year, I was explaining to the altar guild, and they kind of looked at me and they said, okay, if you want to. And so we had these cold bottles, and Tony Burgle literally like walks the bottle out to me at the announcements. And I make the announcements, and I say, <clears throat> okay, it's the first, it's the party, right? Jesus is risen. So, and then for, I don't know what made me think of it, but I said, who wants to catch the cork? And it was as if everyone transitioned to a baseball game all at once. I mean, when I tell you people were literally out of their chair, I mean, out of the pews, raising their hand, like, me, 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 me. It was hilarious. And the guy who caught the cork that night, because I do a good cork arch, I just want you to know, like, it went way back, um, brought it to me, and now I have it, like, sitting on my desk. I said, it's yours, you caught it. He said, no, it's your first one here. And I was like, okay, thank you. Um, so, yes, we do that. And then the acolytes are always really excited about the Easter Vigil because we don't preserve the wine from the Easter Vigil for the services the next day. Did you hear that? It has to be consumed. Um, and so, you know, anything for the gospel, right? Okay, so how in the world, what am I talking about? How did we get here? Um, thank you so much. It's a good question. Uh-huh, thanks. <laughs> Any other questions about these festivals before we talk about exile stuff? <laughs> oh, yes, thank you, Bella. Bella's like, you know, you're going to be overrun with all the acolytes that want to serve at the Easter Vigil. There was a picture, a hilarious picture my first year here of the Verger Corps because they had literally filled, you know how we have those clear bottles that bring the wine to the altar as extra to refill chalices during communion, they had filled them all with the Prosecco. And so before bringing it out for communion, they had all taken a picture together in the back, like filled. And it was really one of those like braggy moments. And they had posted it on social media, like, wish you served a St. Michael, didn't you? Um, but it is, it's sort of fun. And it's like the one time only that we do it, but it's wine too, so whatever. I like to think that Jesus is delighted by it. Okay. So now, with no more questions, um, I want to make a connection between these festivals and what is happening in the exile with the Jews. We've talked about the exile many times in here. This is one of those moments, though, when you read through Leviticus critically, I think it is very fair for you to read this and say, it is likely not God's intention to set forth all of these holidays in this perfect rhythm right there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Could that have happened? Yes. Is it most likely that all of these came down baked and then they just were used? Almost certainly not. What happens from this point on is a very real understanding that the Jews are meant to remember God's blessings the way that God has delivered them, the way that God cares for them, and how then they are to care for one another. But it takes centuries of living this out to begin to coalesce around different holiday moments. The fact that Pentecost and Sukkot coalesce with harvest festivals, that's not a coincidence. Harvest festivals were a perfect opportunity 
for people to be encouraged to give thanks to God. It just worked. You had excess, you had surplus, you had just plowed your fields, you would not eat everything that you just gathered today. And so isn't it great to take some of your surplus and then to go and give thanks to God? And so of course, over generations, those holidays began to solidify as wonderful moments together. Fast forward to the exile, and when the Jews begin to think, how did this happen to us? What did we do wrong? The sense that they needed to especially atone every year became really important. It's one thing to celebrate Passover, that is great. But Passover is in a sense passive. God did that for us. Yom Kippur becomes a moment when we are very active in, with God. We go to God and say sorry. We go to God and confess. We go to God in order to reconcile. And it's that deep understanding of our responsibility in our relationship to God that becomes for the Jewish people the way they prevent an experience like the exile in the future. They know they did something because God is not too weak. And so if they lost their way, how do they then shore up their community so that that doesn't happen again? That's when these holidays really take root and become part of that cycle. We, I think, can understand the cycle like a liturgical calendar. These seasons prepare us for certain celebrations. And just like Lent prepares us for Easter, Easter prepares us for Pentecost, Advent prepares us for Christmas, and Epiphany prepares us for Lent. I mean, we see that this cycle actually goes very intentionally so that every year, at least once in every year, we're reminded of the most important ideas of our faith. That is what we are seeing here in Leviticus, fully baked, but it did not happen at Sinai. It happened over the course of centuries, and we're seeing the benefit of their thoughtfulness when they finally wrote it all down. Good? Any thoughts on that before we move on? This is the largest section today. All right. Three more sections, punishment, jubilee, and penalties. So let's jump into punishment. Chapter 24. This is an example of why I don't really like Leviticus. <clears throat> I'm not even going to read the passage to you. If you haven't read it, here's the gist. A man blasphemes against God. He is reported as a blasphemer. Moses says, God, what should I do? God says, make a spectacle of him. Make sure everyone knows what he did wrong and how he blasphemed my name and then take him outside the camp and stone him to death. And so they did. Chapter 24. <laughs> you need to know this is in Leviticus. You need to be familiar with how scripture can be taken um, actually, scripture can be taken contextually by Christians who forget about Jesus. That's what I want you to know. So there are plenty of Christians who will lift up something like verse 20, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? This is where it comes from. And they will then conveniently use that 
in order to justify their own purposes. But they forget that Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. It is so convenient to just stop with eye for an eye. But if we are actually anchoring our identity in Christ and not in whatever we like out of the Bible, then Jesus literally says, nah, that does not work. I paraphrase him. Jesus says, that's not how we treat each other. And so then we can ask an important question. Did God get this wrong? Did God change his mind? Because if Jesus explicitly says, no, no, that is not right, but we see in Leviticus that God said it, then I hope that we, as I've said before, have become very sophisticated Bible studiers, and we know that God did not actually say this thing to Moses. The better question is, why did the Jews need to believe that God wanted this kind of thing to happen? I read this very sympathetically. Here they are, people that have escaped slavery in Egypt. They are out in the middle of nowhere where no one chooses to live, where they can barely grow anything or maintain their herds, and they're about to go into the promised land where people already live and are well-established. It is scary. They do not have the benefit or the luxury of people thinking for themselves. They need to be profoundly unified. And we're talking military level unification or else they will not achieve their goals. Once they achieve their goal in the promised land, they know that when they began to break apart and fight, in, fight together, they were weak enough to be overrun by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and taken into exile. So when all this stuff gets codified, I completely understand their desire to make sure that their people are absolutely walking in step, unified under the best reasons, not blaspheming God. That's a good thing. We should hold each other to that kind of high standard. Now, does that mean when you blaspheme God, you should be stoned to death? Well, I think that's a little too much. But the desire to maintain unity comes from a place that I totally understand. They need to be as strong as possible to resist all of the bad things in the world. And by bad things, that means other nations. And so this is how they articulate God's desire for them to be strong. By the time Jesus comes along, unity is not understood as something physical. It is really understood as something spiritual. And so for Jesus, the kind of textbook poster child for pacifism, he shows that this is not the way you behave. And I imagine he was very gentle about saying, you may have believed this, and people were probably saying this for good reasons, not the way you are called to act. All right, feedback or thoughts on that? Yes. Complicated. Um, Maybe. So, the 
Yes. Okay, so you didn't actually ask your question, but I think your question is, why have we structured our civil laws to be so very blatantly not what Jesus said? Does that sound like a good question? That's my question. Um, what is your question, Howard? Ask me questions. Yes, okay. So when Jesus says, I bring a new law, does that supplant Levitical principles and laws? Kinda is the answer. Jesus was Jewish, for sure. What Jesus really did, the spirit of what Jesus did with his new law, is to sweep away all of the excess around what is the core principles of Judaism. I firmly believe the way that I read Jesus is that he just got to the heart of Jewish identity. Over the centuries, Jews very faithfully had created a whole bunch of stuff around what was the core identity of their relationship to each other and to God. We, remember we read last week, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did not come up with that. That's Leviticus. But like any good human person, that wasn't good enough. They needed to know how and when and under what circumstances and where and all the other stuff. And so Jesus essentially comes back and says, you cannot do that. You cannot ask the why and the how and the when and the who. It's everyone all the time, everywhere, period. That's it. Now, we know exactly what happened to the Jews because it happened to Christians. So in case you hadn't heard, Christians made up lots of rules about what is and is not okay. And we know, all, we know all the ways in which the early traditions, Orthodox and Romans, went way off the rails with all kinds of bad things. But we are not free from that either. How many times do we talk in our churches, even in the Episcopal Church, about who can be in but who is out and what we can do for certain people but not for other people? It's ridiculous because it's just not what Jesus said. And we can be as offended as we want about that sort of stuff, but you can't read Jesus any other way. That's it. And so we can say that Jesus actually meant something else if we want to. Go ahead, you can make that argument. But I find that argument to be much weaker than the argument that says Jesus actually meant everyone's included and you love one another. Like when Jesus went and ate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all the other stuff, he meant it. He was not subtly trying to indicate some complexity around who is in, in and who is out. No, he just wanted everyone in. And when he says love your neighbor, he actually just meant that. The end, period. That spirit of Jesus is not un-Jewish. It's actually quite fundamental to Judaism. But when Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders at the time in the first century, 
they have made everything so complicated that he said, you cannot see the forest for the trees. You've missed the point. And so he tries to distill it down. And then all Christians did was exactly the same thing and overcomplicated everything again. And so I had a, a friend once, she's a theologian who has since died, um, who said that the church, the Christian church, has a yard sale about every 500 years. And essentially, like, cleans up and gets rid of all the junk that has accumulated. So if you think about a person who's lived in a house for 80 years, what is in the closets and the attics and the storage spaces and all the other stuff? It's a bunch of junk that at some point you thought, man, I might use that again, but you have never seen it, and it has not been used for 40 years, and the church has essentially done that. It's totally well-intended, but every so often we have to just get everything out and clean it up and keep what is most important. And what is, I think, profound about that idea is you can actually step back every 500 years or so and see that that's kind of right. I mean, 500 years ago-ish was the Reformation, and 500 years before that was the Great Schism, and 500 years before that was essentially the councils of the church that defined everything in Rome, and 500 years before that, Jesus. And then 500 years before that, the destruction of the temple, and 500 years before that, I mean, you can kind of go, it's, now that's obviously like kind of loose, but eh, I mean, it sort of works. And so I think as we are essentially in that moment right now, and I think what will happen is that the 20th and 21st centuries are going to be seen as that transition, where things are being thrown out, and people whine all the time about young people aren't going to church anymore, and blah, 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 and I just think that, don't worry about it, because we have done this before. I was with the Archbishop of Canterbury years ago, um, and we were standing in Lambeth Palace, and he was talking about that, and he walked over to the wall, and he pointed at one of the many, many white men who were Archbishops of Canterbury that all look the same, um, and he pointed at one of them and said, you know who this is? No, none of us knew. And he said his name, I don't remember. And he said, do you know in 16-something, while he was Archbishop of Canterbury, what the Easter attendance at St. Paul's Cathedral was? And he said it was eight people at St. Paul's for Easter then, in the 1600s. So his point was, we've seen this before. It will be okay so long as we are faithful about it and that we're not pig-headed about it. And so part of what we are seeing now, which I am, I'm sorry to ever see churches suffer in some way, but what we are seeing now are these trends with the big box, mega, whatever churches that have, in a sense, kind of been exclusive and a bit ugly in culture war stuff over the last few decades. They're seeing a precipitous decline over the last 10 years, especially with young people. I want people to go to church, but I'm hoping that the way that we tell the story will resonate fresh in the future if we are faithful enough to let all of the excess go. I often say that the Episcopal Church, being an Anglican Christian should be the m most popular way to be Christian because it is so very intellectual and it is honest and it is mysterious and in all those good ways. But Episcopal churches have, you know, what I affectionately call such a thick layer of bullshit around them that <laughs> if we do not try and clear that away, people outside of our churches have no reason to push their way through. And so it really requires us 
to be as confident and courageous as we can be to try and push down every single barrier we can that really has nothing to do with Jesus so that people have a much easier way to access what is that deepest truth. And if, they, if we can do that, then they will, because it is the story we tell of Christ is not problematic. It's the great story. If the story is not resonating with people, it's the fault of the storytellers, not the story. And so that then is on us to make that, to fix that so that people can see what is so good at the core. And I think in a sense, that's what Jesus was trying to do to what had been developed around Judaism with all good intentions. Get back to basics and what is the core. And all he was really doing was what God had already done. He was simply reiterating again. That's a very interesting point, that this was a very balanced way to rectify a wrong. So if someone did you wrong, then you rectified it by essentially rebalancing. So if someone killed your sheep, the way that you rectify that wrong is they give you a sheep. That's it. You don't go after them for a worse punishment than what they did to you. Interestingly, though, as... Americans, crime and punishment for us is very much centered on the state. And so if you think about the when someone commits a crime, it's very rarely ever that the person offended upon actually receives much. Usually the state brings that criminal to justice and they essentially repay the state, corporate. That's fine, but that is different than what is being described here. Jewish crime and punishment is much more about the people rectifying and reconciling together than somehow an offense being then claimed by the state and then the state representing the person who was offended upon. That's our model. What you see here with eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that sort of stuff, is much more about if I wrong you, then I need to reconcile with you. It has nothing to do with everyone else. It really is not a communal issue. It's an issue between us. Now, there is a communal expectation that we will reconcile, but I don't actually have to repay the community. I have to repay you because I wronged you. And that is just not mostly the way our justice system works. If Think about something horrible. Someone kills another person. The family can bring a civil suit against the person who killed them in order to seek reparations or expenses or whatever. Almost always, nothing comes of that, except maybe you feel better. I don't know. 
because it's the criminal suit, not the civil suit, that puts the person away for having killed or murdered or whatever level that is. And at that point then, there's nothing really for the family who is hurt by that person to reach some sort of reconciliation with the person, they're gone. They're either imprisoned or potentially even executed. And like execution, I will answer that question very quickly. We should not. I mean, that's it. As Christians, there is no, there is no thoughtful execution. Sorry. Um, I mean, Jesus literally allowed himself to be executed. So I don't see how you can shift anything about that to be a defense of execution. So there's that. Um, does that feel okay with kind of communal versus corporate? Yeah, it's tit, it's tit for tat sort of stuff, and it's yeah, right, right. There is no sense really of like emotional damage, or that that almost um, indefinite sort of damage. It's much more about you hurt me than you should be hurt the same way. Nice and easy, um, and for a very simple agrarian people that's actually kind of efficient because you don't have to go through a whole bunch of other stuff about the way people feel. It's very much about, oh, your sheep died? Give them a sheep. We're square. And it's kind of nice because then you move on. And hopefully, I think that at some point in time, and I am not, I have no capacity to explain this, it must have been that someone said, that's not good enough. And the fact that I, my sheep was killed and I couldn't then go sell it means not only do I need a new sheep, but I also need you to repay me for the loss of the sale I would have had on that sheep. And so it's more than just replace my sheep. You gotta replace my sheep and compensate me for what I lost. And then that began to cascade into, you know, ballooning beyond just an eye for an eye kind of moment. All right. I think I can do this, actually. The rest of this is quite simple. Um, look at chapter 25. We're going to do section 3 about the Jubilee year. Chapter 25, let's just read it, beginning verse 8, a few verses. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return, every one of you, to your property and every one of you to your family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat only what the field itself produces. Okay, here it is. Bottom line is we've got a magnitude increase of what Pentecost really is, this celebration, this return. You've got, you know, the seven sevens of weeks gives you the 50th day after Passover to Pentecost. This is now seven sevens of years that brings you to the 50th year. And so I know all you math people, you're like, you love this. Um, it's quite simple. 
Jewish festival days allowed for essentially a reset, a way to celebrate God and reset whatever problems have happened or bad things that have happened. That's a yearly cycle. And then every seven sevens of years, so every 50th year, there is a massive reset and festival of Thanksgiving. And that is called Jubilee. We get the term Jubilee that means 50th year from Leviticus. It is that word. And so for us, Jubilee tied to 50th comes from right here. And it is seven sevens of years that brings you to the 50th year celebration. Jubilee nowadays doesn't necessarily mean 50th. It does. If you were to just say Jubilee to somebody, give me one idea what you think, it's probably 50. But Jubilee has become an idea of big, massive celebration. So we all know, like Queen Elizabeth, for example, she has her Jubilee year multiple times. She's had Jubilees. It's the Jubilee for the 50th, Jubilee for the 60th, Jubilee for the 70th. Jubilee is also taken on a religious connotation around a year that is set apart from other years. If you have ever been to the Vatican in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica has two gigantic gold doors that are called Jubilee doors. Most of the time they are closed, but whenever the Pope declares a Jubilee year for any reason, those doors are opened and pilgrims can go in. So I actually, in 2000, when I went to the Vatican, didn't realize it, um, but it was a Jubilee year for the world. It was a year to proclaim peace and to seek peace and to whatever. And so they opened those big gold doors and you could go through because Jubilee meant a year set apart from other years. That's happened other times. It doesn't have to necessarily make sense mathematically anymore. And the Jubilee year is something that is really not a modern Jewish thing. Um, you probably have, I mean, Jews really don't do this. Um, they do other things annually, but the whole 50th cycle, not really. All right, good. We've got one more thing to cover. I can do it, I can do it. So penalties and rewards. Look at chapter 26. Chapter 26, verse 3. If you follow my statutes and keep my commandments and observe them faithfully, I will give you rains in their season, land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Jump to 14. But if you will not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and abhor my ordinances so that you will not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will bring you terror consumption and fever that waste the eyes and cause life to pine away. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it, and on and on. So, chapter 26, which closes out the Holiness Code, is this very interesting sort of, if you do the right stuff, you will be blessed. If you do the wrong stuff, you will be punished. Interestingly, and I want to make this clear, the Leviticus, Judaism in general, has no concept of prosperity gospel. That is and you will be fine. You do the wrong thing and you will be punished. This is not if you do the right thing, you're going to sail up and succeed and become super wealthy. It's not that. It's just that life will be good. <laughs> I think of my Jewish friends, and you know how like, Jews are notoriously just very even keel, right? They're not totally excitable. Um, this is why, like, do all the right stuff and you're just fine. 
this is not a party. It's not a celebration. You don't get the big house or the fast car. You just don't get punished. That's the point. And so what I want to leave you with is, again, this kind of receiving this idea of do the right thing and you're not punished, do the wrong thing and you're punished, which is fundamental Jewish identity. And then look at Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to turn. Just listen. Jesus said, said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you will wear. It is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your span of your life, and why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all those things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We hear again, Jesus take this Jewish idea and repackage it and get to its essence, which is not about punishment. It's really about provision. God is for us, and God will care for us. And we are simply asked to seek after a righteous life. That's it. It is really that simple. And it doesn't mean that we're going to have all the fancy stuff. It means that what we have will always and forever be just what we need. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is getting this back-to-basics moment that connects from Leviticus all the way through the New Testament. And that's it. I hope you all have a wonderful spring break. Stay safe and join us digitally on the Holy Land pilgrimage if you have time. See you all in two weeks.